Well, being that it's Father's Day, I thought it would be appropriate for us to consider the subject of the fatherhood of God. I've had the privilege recently to meet with a, a young couple, and we've been talking about marriage and family and just our walk with the Lord, and I was so blessed and convicted all at the same time recently when the gal, um, in a moment of frustration and expressing disappointment, knowing that perhaps she's not being all that God would have her to be um, in her marriage and her family and not really knowing what to do about it, she simply just said, I I just want to be a good daughter. And she was talking about a daughter of God. And then she said, of course, and a good wife and a good mom. But the fact that she said a good daughter first, that's the first thing that came to her mind, the first thing that came out of her mouth, was so encouraging for me because, and convicting to me because so often I identify with so many other things. I find my identity in other things besides the fact that I am a son of God. I'm a child of God, which should be what we identify ourselves as First and foremost, amen? Like no matter what else is going on in our lives, no matter how good or bad uh, our lives are, the one fallback is that we're a son or daughter of God, of the living God of the universe. And so, man, that's enough, isn't it? Um, To give us joy, to give us peace, to give us comfort, to grant us the perseverance we need uh, to endure whatever it is that we're uh, having to endure And so uh, I hope that this morning, as we consider this subject of the Father of God, God, which, by the way, I think few subjects are as important as this because our entire understanding of Christianity really is rooted and grounded in the reality that God is our Father, but that ultimately we would be reminded of that is our ultimate identity, that we are children of God, and in that we should rejoice. J.I. Packer wrote a classic book called Knowing God. If you haven't read it yet, put it on your book bucket list. You've got to read that book. It's a classic. Um, but this is what he said about this subject of God's fatherhood. He asked the question, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, he said, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. He went on to say this, the revelation to the believer that God is his father is in a sense the climax of the Bible, just as it was a final step in the revelatory process which the Bible records. And I think what he was referring to there was while God did refer to himself in the Old Testament as the father of Israel uh, and liken them to his children, uh, More times, he revealed himself to the nation of Israel as Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. 
And God used this specific name for himself to awaken a fearful awe and respect in the hearts and minds of not just the Israelites, but also all the surrounding nations. And the aspect of his character that he stressed the most was his holiness. Now, the basic idea of the word holy is that of of separation or separateness. And so God wanted his people to realize that he was set apart from them, that he was completely other than them and far and away above and beyond them. And God emphasized time and time again in the Old Testament that as sinful creatures, we must keep our distance from his holy presence. I mean, don't even touch... Mount Sinai, or you'll get struck dead when he was giving the Ten Commandments. And so this really, the, the, the fear of the Lord overshadowed the whole spirit of the Jewish religion in the Old Testament. But when you, get, when you get to the New Testament, you see things have changed. And it's not God, by the way. Hopefully you realize that. God didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how he revealed himself to us changed because of one thing or one person. Who is that one person? Jesus Christ, his son. God is still holy. God is still righteous and awesome and is to be treated with great fear and and reverence and respect. But the spirit of God reveals something new and profound to us in the pages of the New Testament. God's transcendence gives way to his imminence. Those of us who've been supernaturally regenerated or born again, as Jesus talked about, by God's spirit, are likened to God's children who are able to relate to God as their loving father. And we know from passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Galatians chapter 4, which we'll look at uh, in a moment, uh, God is referred to as Abba, which was the Aramaic term that children in the first century used to address their fathers. It was likened to, as a term of endearment like we would use today, daddy or papa. It it was a personal, intimate expression of closeness and, and, and tenderness. And so I think it was meant to be a a staggering thought that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we can now become personally and intimately acquainted with the infinitely high and holy God. Now, having said all that, there's a whole lot of well-meaning people in the world who assume that at birth, they were automatically born into the family of God. And there's this thinking in the world that we're all God's children, uh, we're all the brotherhood of mankind. And, and granted, as the creator, God is the father of all mankind. Paul referenced that in Acts 17, verse 28. He said, for in him we live and move and exist. We are his offspring. But as savior, God is the father of only those who he has chosen to adopt as his own through faith in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees are a good example of those who presumed upon the fact that because they had been born into the family of Abraham, that naturally made them God's children. And Jesus 
set the record straight and confronted these hypocritical uh, individuals when he said to them, you are of your father the devil. That went over real big, I'm sure. We'll turn to 1 John chapter 3, just for a moment, and we're going to be looking at a number of passages today. This is more of a selected scriptures type of message, but 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, a passage we've looked at on numerous occasions, but it simply reveals that there are only two categories of people, and all of us in here this morning fit into one of these two categories. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. And here it is, verse 10, by this the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So every human being is either a member of God's family or Satan's family. And just being born isn't enough to make you a child of God. You must be born, what? Again. According to John chapter 3, you must be born spiritually. And if you've not been born again, the Bible says that you are still a child of Satan. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you place your faith in him alone for your salvation, then you become a child of God. John 1.12 says it this way, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so when we receive Jesus Christ, the transcendent, all-powerful, holy God of the universe becomes our daddy. And the emphasis of the New Testament is not so much on the fear and trepidation of drawing near to a holy God, this smoking mountain with fire and, 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 and this, this um, ominous voice coming from heaven, but more on the boldness and the confidence with which we can approach God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The point is simply this, we can enter into God's holy, majestic presence and address him as daddy, Abba, and crawl up in his lap, if you will, and share with him the most intimate details of our lives, our cares and concerns and our pressures and questions and desires and dreams. Now, some might argue that 
that it's difficult, maybe even impossible for someone who had a bad father or who had no father, was fatherless, to ever be able to fully relate to and appreciate the fatherly care and love and concern of God. However, I agree with J.I. Packer who says that it doesn't matter whether or not you had a good father or a bad father or no father. The thought of God being the, the perfect heavenly father has meaning for everybody. This is how he said it. He said, whether we come to it by saying, I had a wonderful father and I see that God is like that only more so, or by saying, my father disappointed me here and here and here, but God, praise his name, will be very different, or even by saying, I have never known what it is to have a father on earth, but thank God I now have one in heaven. He said, the truth is that all of us have a positive ideal of fatherhood by which we judge our own and others' fathers, and it can safely be said that the person for whom the thought of God's perfect fatherhood is meaningless or repellent does not exist. And the good news is that God hasn't just left us to merely imagine what his fatherhood is like by drawing comparisons from from human fatherhood, good or bad, or none at all. He has clearly revealed the full intent and extent of his father relationship with us through his word. And so I thought it'd be good for us this morning just to just to just quickly and, and, and briefly look at some of what the Bible teaches about God's fatherhood and then some, some, suggest some applications for all of us who are believers, but specifically for those of us who are fathers. So, first of all, I want us just to see five expressions of God's fatherly love towards his children. So these, are just, just, these aren't the only expressions of God's love for us as a children, but these are at least five expressions of God's fatherly love towards his children. And the reason why I chose the, 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 the phrase fatherly love is because that's really the starting point for our understanding of God as our daddy. First uh, John chapter three, verse one. First John chapter three, verse one. John says, "See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are." So he's like, "Look, look and see the the many ways that God has shown His great love towards us as His children." And so our starting presupposition here is that God loves us like a father loves his children. And his love is expressed to us in a number of significant ways. Number one, God the Father adopts us. God the Father adopts us. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five. And again, you have all these listed there in your notes, but if you wanna try to keep up, you can. Uh, So you can see it with your own eyes here. Ephesians chapter one, verse four, just as God shows us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. 
In other words, it had nothing to do with us. There was nothing in us that drew us to him or God to us. We were sinful, smelly, snotty-nosed orphans that he simply chose to adopt and to make his own. Galatians chapter 4, they're in the same neighborhood, just pat back up a page probably. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might, he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son and if a son, then an heir through God. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 14, talking about the, how the Spirit provides us assurance of salvation, um, Paul uses the analogy of a father and a son. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for all of you for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So God demonstrates his love for us in that he has adopted us. Secondly, God the Father forgives us. God the Father forgives us. Uh, a few weeks back, we were reminded of that classic parable that Jesus told about the prodigal sons, plural, right? But uh, we love the, the, first, the story of the first son who um, rebelled against his dad and took his inheritance early and went off and squandered it all with loose living and moral living, but then he came to his senses, he repented, and he went back home and sought his father's forgiveness. And it says in verse 21 of Luke 15, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He is lost. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. So the beautiful picture of the forgiving heart of God that he saw his son coming over the horizon and instead of waiting for him to come, he ran towards him, he embraced him, he kissed him. Again, just the heart of God expressed there. Um, remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Luke 23, verse 34, he looked down on all those who had crucified him, those who were mocking him and rejecting him, and he simply cried out to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The point is that the son knew that he could appeal to his dad to forgive them. Why? Because he was a forgiving God, a forgiving father. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And then he followed that up with the story of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. You remember that story? There was a slave who owned uh, or owed uh, far more than he could ever repay in a thousand lifetimes. And so the king was very gracious and forgave him his debt. And that slave turned around and found a guy that owed him a few bucks and threw him into jail because he couldn't, threw him into prison because he couldn't pay his debt to him. And the king heard about it, and he said this in verse 32 of Matthew 18, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. And here's the point, the punchline. Verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What does Ephesians 4 say? Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God has forgiven us in Christ. So God shows his love to us by adopting us, by forgiving us. And then number three, he shows us his love by providing for us. Again, back in Matthew 6, we see the, the Lord's Prayer here. And we were instructed by Christ to pray this, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll not give him a snake, will he? And here's the the turn here, he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Even sinful dads know how to give good gifts to their kids. And if we know how to do that, how much more does our heavenly Father know how to do that? Now, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 Paul wanted to reassure the Philippians after they had sacrificially given uh, to support his ministry. He said this in Philippians 4, verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's not just physical needs that God provides for us. He also provides for our spiritual needs. Um, Ephesians chapter 3 Verse 14, Paul prayed this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so God not only provides for our physical needs, but also for our spiritual needs, which, by the way, are far more important. So God, the Father, adopts us, he forgives us, he provides for us, and God also shows his love for us in the way that he disciplines us. Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse 5, another familiar text. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord is mad at, he disciplines. Is that what your Bible says? No. For those whom the Lord, what? Loves. He disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If some of, some of you are getting away with, you know, sin and you're not experiencing any kind of discipline, that may be evidence that you're not truly saved. God feels no need to spank you, right? There's a reason I don't go around spanking your kids. They're not my kids, they're your kids, right? I spanked my own kids. Not anymore, obviously, but when they were little, right? My dad spanked me. He didn't spank anybody else's kids. So if you're not getting spanked, if you will, spiritually speaking, when you're living in some sort of sin, or you're, uh, then perhaps it's because you're not truly a child of God. He goes on here. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I guess I already read that. Look at verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, talking about earthly dads, but he disciplines us for our good and so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It was not a joyful experience when I was getting spanked when I was a kid. Um. It was sorrowful, but I'm thankful that my parents loved me enough to spank me, and it's produced fruit. It's yielded the peaceful fruit of righteousness by the grace of God. So, God the Father shows how much he loves you by disciplining you. And then lastly, number five, God the Father shows his love for us by promising us a future reward and assures us of an eternal home. So he promises us a future home and assures us, uh, excuse me, a future reward and assures us of an eternal home. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, talking about praying and giving. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Matthew 26, 29 Jesus said this when he instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so our Father's a king, and we have the, his kingdom to look forward to, to live forever with him uh, in his, at, his, at his house, if you will. John 14, verse 1, do not... 
let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. By the way, I think sometimes we have a, 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 a false view of heaven, right, that we think that that, that heaven is like this big city, perhaps, and we have, you know, all of us will have our own separate dwelling places, and, you know, you go down, you, we get there, hey, welcome to heaven, and go down three blocks, and go to the right, and down that street, and there's where you're going to be living for all eternity. Well, according to Jesus, it says, he refers to it as the Father's house. In other words, there's one house with many rooms. In other words, we're going to just live together in, in one big mansion, apparently, I'm not sure. Again, this is speculation, but I think it's interesting there. He talks about God's house. And so God adopts us as his children. He forgives us as his children. He provides for us as his children. He disciplines us as his children. And he promises a future reward and assures us of an eternal home as his children. So in light of these loving things, these many ways that God has shown his love for us, proven his love towards us, we need to consider how we can show love in return. He, we love because he first loved us, right? So how should we live our lives as God's children in light of the ways that he has loved us? Well, let me suggest five ways, five ways that we should live our lives as God's children. Number one, we should obey him. We should obey him. First uh, John uh, three. We already looked at uh, part of this text, but First John chapter three verse two says, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure." Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. So again, the idea here is obedience to the Lord. Look at chapter 5 there. Just look across the page perhaps. 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we need to obey God. Secondly, we need to honor God. We need to honor God. Remember back in, in Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 14. Uh, well, let's just jump to verse 16. It says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we want to be used by God to glorify him and honor him. Um, in fact, we were taught to pray that. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, 
Um, this is how you begin your prayers, by honoring the Lord. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And not just begin your prayers like that, but end your prayers like that. Verse 13, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we just want to have a heart to honor Christ or to honor our Father. John 15, 8, in that passage about abiding in the vine, John 15, 8. Jesus said, my father is glorified or honored by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we need to obey our father. We need to honor our father. Which, by the way, what are the two commands given in Ephesians chapter 6 to children? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you and you'll live long on the earth. So we need to obey and honor our Heavenly Father. We also, number three, need to trust Him. We need to trust Him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, in the same context of learning to ask God to give us this day our daily bread, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, he says, For this reason I say to you, Jesus said, Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He doesn't say their heavenly Father. He says your heavenly Father. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that you, that not even Solomon in all of his glory was clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. So, we need to trust the Lord. We need to demonstrate our faith in Him, not be of little faith. Number four, we need to worship Him. We need to worship our Heavenly Father. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 21. This is uh, what Jesus said to the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. By the way, I hope you're seeing the trend here. I'm just simply going through the scriptures and looking up places where Father is mentioned, right? With a capital F. Um, just kind of a little concordance study here of, of uh, what the Bible says about God the Father. 
we have one more way I think that we should respond to God's love for us, and that is to imitate him or reflect him. To imitate him or to reflect him. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus was giving instruction about how to deal with your enemies, uh, and this is what he said. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here it is, don't miss it, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus expected us to be like his Father. And God is perfect. And he called us to a life of perfection, which obviously is impossible, and that's why he came. I like Luke's uh, account of the same subject about loving your enemies and doing good, expecting nothing in return. Verse 35, this is Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. In other words, when we do this, when we respond in a countercultural way, it will prove that we are sons of God, that we are daughters of God, because only those who have God as their father can respond this way. Ephesians 5.1, Paul says it very simply, very bluntly. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children. God expects us to be spitting images of him, to, to look like him and talk like him and act like him. Now, it's one thing to be told what we're supposed to do, but it also helps to have someone show us how to do it. And guess who did that? Jesus showed us how to do all of these things. Why? Because he was God's perfect son. And so therefore, he perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly honored God. He perfectly trusted God. He perfectly worshiped God. And he perfectly imitated or reflected God. Now, I've got verses for all those too. I just don't have time to share them except maybe for John 1.14. This was John's description of the word made flesh. In other words, Jesus, God, becoming a man in the person of Christ. This is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then later, just a few verses after that, 
excuse me, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Talking about Christ there. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is God in human form. He's God in the flesh. Or you could say it this way, he's God with skin on. Reminds me of the story of a little boy who was awakened in the middle of the night by a violent thunderstorm and he cried out, Daddy, come here, I'm scared. And so his dad got quickly out of bed and went to comfort him and he He said, son, there's no reason for you to be scared. God loves you, and he's right here with you, watching over you and protecting you. And the boy said, I know that, Daddy, but right now I just want somebody with skin on. (laughs) And I think that's the essence of fatherhood, that, that the role of a father is to be God with skin on. In other words, as as fathers, we must strive to be the most accurate reflection of God to our children. We need to treat our children like God treats us. We need to love them the way God loves us. We need to talk to them like God talks. We need to discipline them like God disciplines us. We need to forgive them like, like God forgives us. We need to provide for them like God provides for us. We need to warn them like God warns us and woo them like God woos us. We need to be patient with them like God is patient with us. We need to be gracious and merciful to them like God is gracious and merciful with us. And so the, the, the question, dads and granddads here, that we need to ask ourselves is this, do we relate to our kids or our grandkids in a way that teaches and shows them what God is like or what God is not like? See, the more our children get to know us, the more they should be getting to know God. And our ultimate goal as fathers should be to to help our kids come to know God as their heavenly father. When we're requiring our kids to obey and honor us, we're simply teaching them ultimately to obey and honor God, their their ultimate father. We're just just passing through us, right? It's not about us, respect me. It's not about me. No, I'm teaching you to honor and obey and respect God by respecting the one that he has placed in authority over you at this time. And so nothing helps our kids, our grandkids want to know him more than when they see him in us. God is the best father of all, isn't he? Best dad ever. We got the best example. We can learn from the best. And so, gentlemen, let's continue to to strive to be like our heavenly father so that our kids and our grandkids will see him in and through us. Amen? Father, thank you for your amazing grace that you plucked us sinful, smelly, snotty-nosed orphans 
out of this sin-cursed world to be part of your family, to be your sons, your daughters. And we look forward to, with great anticipation, the day we get to spend eternity with you in your house in heaven. And in the meantime, Lord, help us just to be good kids, good sons, good daughters who love you and obey you and honor you and serve you and worship you and seek to imitate you and reflect you to this lost and dying world around us. May we bear the resemblance of our dad, that if anyone knows us, that they would see that we're a spitting image of you. And uh, we know that we can't do this in our own strength. We need your help. Thank you for Jesus who modeled all this for us and made it all possible. We love you and thank you in his name. Amen.